everyone. I'm Peg Mulqueen. And I'm Megan Powell. Welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Yoga Podcast. Today's guest is Theo Wildcroft, who is a yoga teacher, writer, and researcher working at the forefront of the movement for trauma sensitivity and inclusion with the yoga culture. As an academic scholar, Theo's research of post-lineage yoga offers significant insight and guidance for teachers and students in building sustainable relationships outside of the traditional hierarchical structures. You know, I've heard the phrase post-lineage yoga tossed around quite a bit on social media, but I'm not sure everyone knows where it came from or even what it means. I mean, I know I didn't at first, but then I did a little digging and found Theo as the author. It's an idea that comes from her doctoral research. So I did what you do. I messaged her on Facebook. And from there, we continued to have more conversations. And the more I talked to Theo, the more I learned. And quite honestly, the more I fell in love with her. And I knew I wanted to have her on the podcast. Our 50th episode, no less. Yeah, that's pretty exciting, right? A little hard to believe too. But anyway... Theo really helped shed some light on questions that have been really weighing heavy. You know, because while there's been lots of necessary and meaningful conversations around past and even current abuses within various yoga lineages and spiritual communities, there's been much less focus on what the way forward looks like. Theo explains that rather than linear models that we're so used to following, she recommends a more horizontally connected model. In other words, instead of only looking up for answers, We also give weight to our own personal experience, as well as checking in with others outside our bubble and using these conversations to keep checking in and adjusting as necessary. Now, I know you weren't on the call that I recorded with Theo, but you've listened. What do you think? I feel like these are all things we should do and incorporate. Like, that's what you do. You go outside your own practice and your own box to figure out what other people are doing. I mean... It's safer and easier to surround yourself with people who think like you and are like-minded. But that's the thing is they're like-minded. It's just like if you were to paint a picture of something or like photographing, you wouldn't just look at it from one angle. You wouldn't say stagnant from just your one place. It reminded me of something my professor told us in college. Don't just take photo classes. Don't get stuck in that rut. You need to take other classes and break out of your bubble if you want to grow as an artist. And that's the same thing we should do with our yoga practice or anything else, really. Politics, art, philosophy, whatever we do. Totally. Honestly, I felt like much of what Theo said just made good sense. Like, I doubt there's even going to be anything that anyone will actually disagree with. And yet, I feel like this also takes effort. It takes work. The conversations that need to happen, the broadening and that continual checking in with ourselves and each other, it isn't necessarily going to happen unless we make that intentional, deliberate choice to set it up. Hence, today's podcast. Exactly. And to start, let's begin with an overview of Theo's doctoral thesis, Post-Lineage Yoga. Here's Theo. increasing numbers of people have heard about the term post-lineage yoga but uh, n- not all of those people are aware about where it's come from so it's, it's useful to be able to clarify that and what's interesting about it is that it, it comes out of my PhD thesis and I didn't set out to describe something global I set out to describe something quite small in that I was investigating kind of alternative yoga communities uh, in the UK and uh, my supervisors uh, were really trying to help me figure out what was specific and and not unique to them, but what was specific uh, that I wanted to talk about, about these communities. What was the untold story, basically, um, of these communities? And they were saying, well, so these are people who, so I would say, for example, all these are people who've suffered guru abuse and lineages and they've come together with other other teachers and practitioners um, to talk about it. And they'd say, oh, so they're anti-lineage. And I said, no, 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 they're definitely not anti-lineage. 
And it took us about 18 months, two years of the process for me to come up with this term, post-learning yoga. What I was really trying to encapsulate with that was the point at which that any yoga, usually teacher, the point at which you go beyond the fact that what your teacher taught you is enough, right? So there comes a point where the things that you've been taught and the things that you find on the mat aren't enough on their own. Not for everyone, but for some people. For those people, then they start to look beyond that to other sources of inspiration to kind of ratify the explorations that they're already in many ways. So they want to check that they're not basically not completely weird in what they're doing. And they start hanging out with yoga teachers and, and practitioners from, from other schools, other lineages, other environments. Now, this in reality is something that most yoga teachers, I think, do a lot of. You know, you go to CPD workshops, you go to conferences, you take online seminars with cool people that you come across. And so I think it's a fairly widespread thing. But what I wanted to talk about was the communities that support this process happening. And to do that, I was focusing on this one little subculture of you know, groups of hippies and fields in, in the southwest of the UK, hanging out together. And the ways in which that community of peers was helping them all navigate that process, basically. So that's why I say that, that really post-lineage yoga for me is about more than just moving beyond the lineage. It's also about what replaces authority when it no longer becomes absolute. So how do you continue to figure out what's working for you and you know, what you want to teach and what feels authentic? How do you negotiate all of that stuff beyond what in your own head and your own practice? And it's a fairly useful thing to do to be in communities, horizontally organized communities of peers to kind of help make that happen. Does that make sense? You talk about horizontally connected. And we had one of the best analogies I have ever read because I spend a lot of my time outside Mm -hmm. dandelions because (laughs) I pick them and then they pop up somewhere else in the yard. I, lo- I love dandelions anyway. Uh, I mean, a lot of the uh, a lot of the communities I've personally been involved in have been kind of alternative communities of different kinds and ecological point of view. Dandelions are amazing. They're early food for the bees. They're, you know, they're just phenomenal things. But I remember that, that we have a tiny garden and there's a few doors down from us until really quite recently used to live the kind of matriarch of the whole line of houses. Right? She'd been there for decades and you could not let a dandelion like grow in your garden. Otherwise, a quiet word would be had. <laughs> she could spot a dandelion four gardens over <laughs> because the seeds would spread that far. And dandelions are amazing in terms of their resilience. They're very good for you as well. You can eat all pretty much any part of a dandelion, although some bits are nicer than others. But anyway, the idea with dandelions is that they are rhizomes. So this isn't an idea that I personally came up with. It's actually well known with different kinds of learning theories, uh, education for liberation and similar kind of participative learning theories, which is about rhizomatic learning. The idea of a rhizome is it doesn't have one deep root or one series of deep roots. It has relatively shallow roots that go in all directions and that connect so that each, you know, there's not really any such thing as an individual dandelion because that dandelion will be connected to lots of others. And if you pull it up, but you leave half an inch of root behind, you'll get 50 more dandelions because they keep spreading. And uh, yeah, so this idea of zomatic learning is that fact that the most sustainable networks are the ones in which the power is distributed, not necessarily consistent information or access to to students in many ways than others. But if you organize it um, outside of a linear hierarchy, then actually it's a really resilient culture because everyone's learning for everyone else all the time. Which means that if you chop one dandelion, it's not going to make any difference. You're going to keep getting dandelions. And the reason why I wanted to use this metaphor is because we're so used to the idea of the of yoga history as being a tree, like a tree of knowledge. You know, all the schools of of yoga are on a tree. Um, you know, each of the very wonderful schools and lineages are kind of one branch on that tree, and each practitioner or teacher is kind of a leaf right on the end. And overall, it looks really resilient and 
because it's not actually that resilient at all on its own. Because the reality is that most trees are only healthy because of their interaction with rhizomatic networks. In this case, uh, fungal networks, the, the, the mycelium that, that, that lives under the ground. The other thing about a lot of rhizomatic networks is that they're invisible. So you go into the forest and you see all the trees. What you don't see is the fungus underneath that actually keeps them all healthy, all of these horizontal networks and connections that go from tree to tree to tree. And the nice thing about that is that it's not an either-or. It doesn't have to be oak trees or dandelions. It can actually be both. It can, you can have the, you can keep the vertical hierarchies, the lineages, and the horizontal hierarchies, which just need to stop pretending that, that you know they, they have nothing in common with each other. And I think above all, we need to stop isolating individual schools and lineages so that anything that's outside of that school or outside of that lineage is somehow, you know, okay, but it's not part of what we do within this particular school or lineage. These little echo chambers that form as a result can, I think, that problems lie in, in modern yoga. I've talked to a lot of people that only kind of associated with one lineage. And maybe they just students who had just come through there or people that have been there a long time and, and simply never used the word branched out. <laughs> but when there's a crack in that branch, when it breaks, it feels horrible. It feels like you've lost everything. Yes, and I think that that's, uh, I think that the, the ways in which people who've been there before us in other lineages and other schools can just be so helpful. I mean, I, you know, I'm talking to a lot of, Ashtanga yoga practitioners and teachers these days, you know, trying to figure out how they uh, come to terms with what's going on for them. And those of us who've been through other, other things with other lineages won't have exactly the same experiences. But, you know, we have wisdom to share about what it's like five years, 10 years down the road, what it's like to, to, to reassess your practices and ways of working as a result. And there's no reason for Ashtanga yoga teachers or anybody else to reinvent the wheel of what consent might look like, of what adjustment might look like, and so on and so forth. When there's a lot of people already have been doing it for a very long time, they're just outside of your bubble. They're outside of your little tree. So there's a thing that tends to happen where people continue just to, just to ask within their own lineages. They keep looking to senior teachers. If senior teachers had the solution, they would have found it by now. You know, they would have figured it out. And that's not to say, oh, let's, you know, get rid of Ashtanga Yoga or Satyananda Yoga or any one of the other uh, schools that have had these problems. What we're saying is, is that maybe by coming together with practitioners from other lineages and schools, maybe there's things we can learn from each other. Interestingly enough, a lot of the senior teachers have indeed branched out so much so that they almost become accused of not being a part of the lineage at all anymore. Does that? Yeah, and I think that's really fascinating because, you know, I'm aware of a number of people who, when they've joined these conversations about how Ashtanga Yoga moves forward, the, the pushback is how uh, how deeply they're, co they're connected to Ashtanga Yoga. Like, that's the only thing that matters, right? How long have you been practicing? How long have you been teaching? Have you been to my school? Have you done this? Have you, how, how deep within the bubble are you because that's what counts rather than do you have useful information to add or do you have a fresh new perspective that might be interesting again it's not about destroying hierarchies it's just saying you know maybe maybe there's something other than this linear hierarchy you can give us some information here not least because the world is fast moving and, and, and changing you know if you're looking at something like yoga, for example you know, it's kind of strange that, that that to still be referring to uh, texts that were written in the 1960s uh, about the health benefits of yoga when the research has really moved on since then, you know, 50, 60 years. And it's, oh, that's okay. You know, it's, it's not uh, a betrayal of, of BKS Iyengar to, to incorporate new knowledge and new research. We all and exactly the same, I'm sure. So why are we still referring to kind of uh, to books on, 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 on particularly on those kind of biomedical kind of benefits and those kinds of things? Why are we still referring to light on yoga as the kind of authority for the benefits of yoga when it says, you know, going upside down is great for your thyroid or this, that, and the other? When we know those things not to be true anymore, that it's okay <laughs> to change what we know. It's not, it's not an insult to, to, the, to the very clever people that were working at a particular point in time with a particular field of knowledge.
You know, I feel like I went through this with the Catholic Church. I was brought up Catholic. I went to Catholic schools. My mom is active in the Catholic Church. I didn't have any other exposure. I had other exposures to other forms of faith, but it also felt like betrayals if I would go to someone else's church. I had to make it clear that I wasn't... This, this religion or whatever, I am Catholic. That was, I identified myself as Catholic, so it became part of my identity. So green. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the big one because it's about identity, right? It's about what our identities are and the labels we give ourselves. And, and I think that uh, particularly if you're a long, long-term practitioner, so much of what you're finding on the mat are these deeply personal, really spiritual experiences of, of creating and recreating identities is it's a lot of what the other side of what my research is about you know is what are we actually doing on the mat and i think one of the things we're doing on the mat over and over again is finding out who we want to be and who we can be and so it's very easy for a transference to occur wherein that the identities that we find become attached to the practices that we do in order to to, to, to have, find those identities and that's hard, you know, in many ways, I think, for, for any long-term practitioner. I think for many of us, for example, there can come a point where the practices that got us to where we are no longer serve us and we need to change the practices that we're doing in some way. Maybe it's because, you know, three hours of strong vinyasa every day and it's no longer cutting it at the age of 50 or whatever. Or, or maybe it's because you want your practice to be slower or you want it to become more meditative or maybe you get, you know, you get really into Kirtan or maybe you lose your faith in Kirtan and, and find something else. You know, there are, there are many ways in which the evolution of identity that happens also then changes the practices that we're And part of the struggle of being a long-term yoga practitioner for, for many of us, I think, is needing to let go of those practices because they're so connected to our identity. So who are we if we're no longer the person that does this thing. And I think that that's where if we can keep connecting ourselves to the question of what is my yoga now? Like, what is my yoga right now? And what, what does it look like? And what does it feel like? Does it feel like service? Does it, does it feel like devotion? Does it feel like just keeping myself healthy? Does it feel like figuring out what's going on in chronic pain in my body or whatever it might be? And, and the clearer we can be about what our yoga is, today in this moment like what's the real issue what is it we're really looking for i think the easier it is not to get stuck with practices and with labels because you know if you're a yoga, if you've been a yoga practitioner for, for doing ashtanga for 20 years and you then become a yin yoga practitioner it doesn't mean you're no longer on the path surely it just means that the path has changed for you right it's useful to to continually ask yourself what is it you're aligned to where is it you're going to to recalibrate right i think that's true because in the end, the practice is a relationship. And I think every relationship benefits from continually recalibrating and, and, and reaffirming what's working for you. Because it's a choice. Like, nobody's paying us to do this, right? <laughs> <laughs> we should be clear about why we're doing it rather than just have it. <laughs> you're going to spend that much time doing it. If you're going to take that time and effort and energy away from your loved ones and your work and everything else that you're doing, then needs to be serving you like otherwise what is the point if it's not allowing you to move through the world in a more ethical and uh, empowered and authentic way then you know i don't care what the label is right as a researcher you can do what you like because it's all fascinating as far as i'm concerned <laughs> whatever it is i get to write about it so but yeah as, as a practitioner i think that has to be a reason and that has to that reason has to be found every day Before we bring you the rest of today's episode with Theo Wildcroft, we have an invitation to share that's actually pretty relevant to today's episode. The LA Yoga Club would like to extend a very special invitation to you to a kinship, a weekend-long gathering in the Southern California desert just outside Joshua Tree, December 6th through 8th. I'll be there along with Greg Nardi, who is next month's guest on the podcast. Right now, we find ourselves collectively as human beings across the planet at a multitude of precarious crossroads. Our stability often appears to be eroding. The differences between us seems to be amplified and the questions of how to continue less clear. 
And as yoga enthusiasts of any style or lineage, this might be a good thing to gather to explore community, practice, the guru culture, lineage, tradition, and compassionate ways forward. And so, along with the LA Yoga Club, we invite you to participate and share time and space with fellow yogis concerned and open to discussion, contemplation, and exploration of what is happening in the world within ourselves and within our practices right now. It is deeply important to connect to our fellow practitioners in a shared space to discuss where we're at in relation to the Me Too movement, power and power imbalances, and also the rise of authoritarianism we're seeing in our governments, on social media, and therefore inevitably playing out on our yoga mats. An outside organization, an olive branch, will facilitate some of our discussions throughout the weekend, bringing their expertise on spiritual community crossroads, student-teacher relationships and transgressions, and to provide structure for calibration and healing so that we can move into and out of uncomfortable spaces and conversations with grace and professional guidance. Our hope is that with their wisdom and experience, we all might come together in community and continue to find refuge in yoga and hold that safe space for our students and peers. Day after day, we are still practicing yoga, still sharing spaces, assisting, listening, changing, adapting, growing, and teaching, still showing up. And we know you are too. We welcome you to come practice alongside us. To learn more, please visit layoga.club backslash workshops backslash kinship. That's layoga.club backslash workshops backslash kinship. Or visit ashangadispatch.com and click on today's podcast episode page. We will have this link as well as ways to learn more and get in touch with Theo there as well. And now let's go back to Theo, who is about to explain why she thinks many yoga teachers and students can be so reluctant to broaden from the more traditionally hierarchical structures and consider other approaches. Many things. I think partly uh, the, the, the cultural assumptions around age, meaning age being associated with authenticity. So the longer you've been doing something, and the longer that thing has been going, so preferably, you know, if you've been if you've been doing a practice for thirty years and it's been the same every day, and that practice is can be proven to be three thousand years old or whatever, somehow that has more weight than a practice. Uh, that maybe you've only been doing for the last six months and somebody kind of figured it out 10 years ago. And I kind of get that. I mean, you know, we, we don't, we, we do want our practices to in some way be proven. <laughs> we don't, we don't like, you know, with some coherence and consistency is a good idea. So that's useful. But at the same time, there is this human tendency to want the things that we do that are cultural or religious in particular to be as old and as established as possible. To the extent that we will fool ourselves about that over and over again, you know, people are consistently exaggerating the age of the thing that they're doing if it is cultural and religious in so many ways. Yeah, really wonderful one. So, no, people have not been doing 108 sun salutations for thousands of years. That's not that's not what's been happening, right? That's that's not true. But then the opposite, the problem with that is the brittleness then of that practice, because as soon as somebody points out that maybe people have only been doing sun salutations as part of yoga since the 1930s, all of a sudden, that's no reason to practice, which is weird to me because if the, the practice doesn't stop working for you, right, if it's still working for you and people have been doing it for 50 years, 100 years, it's still a long period of time within human history. But it's part of a wider thing. It's not just in yoga. It's, uh, it's a very human thing to do, I think, to, to want these practices to be ancient uh, in some way and, and long-standing. And, and preferably exotic as well, preferably coming from a, a, a time and a place that's far away and completely pure and, you know, having, no, having not been polluted by, by the modern world or the contemporary world. And that's the other thing people find difficult, find it very difficult to, to be confronted with the evidence that maybe yoga has always been a practice that's been influenced by politics of many, many kinds. 
um, and that reflects its context, whatever that context was, whether that was a colonial context or, you know, a hierarchical kind of patriarchal context or uh, whether it's just, you know, neoliberalism, right? People, if you're attached to it, you, you want to think of it as something pure. And I think it also helps from that point of view that at my academic perspective, at least my PhD is within religious studies and religious studies as discipline has a lot to say about things like age and tradition, but also around purity and what purity and pollution mean for human beings and what purity, the ways in which we, ex- we explore ideas of uh, purity and corruption over and over and over again uh, in what we do. So I think all of those are at play and they're all very strong cultural impulses. So it's, it's kind of hard to go against the flow. And I think when people do go against the flow, we're so unused to thinking of horizontal networks of knowledge that the assumption is if you don't have the structure, like if you don't have the lineage or whatever else it might be, some people think it's lineage. Some people want, um, you know, some kind of generic standard standards organization. So it's either lineage on the one hand or it's some kind of bureaucracy that, that tells us what yoga should be. And people think that without one or the other, without these formal structures, that it's anything goes. It's just, you know, each individual on their own mat doing their own thing. And it's fascinating to me because everything I talk about is about relationships. Everything I talk about in terms of organizations, of yoga teachers coming together and the way yoga teachers figure out together where the boundaries of what the practice are right now. You know, the endless conversations about whether yoga is yoga or be yoga is yoga or, you know, whether this can be yoga, whether that can be yoga. It, all of these conversations are part of us figuring out together what the boundaries of our practice are. And in my experience, yoga teachers are actually really consistent on their answers to those questions. Really, cons- it's surprisingly consistent. We tend to come up with the same answers. It's just those answers are constantly evolving. But if you ask, you know, 20 yoga teachers from around the world whether goat yoga is goat yoga, most of them will say probably not unless it's in certain circumstances. And all of them will say, pretty much, you know, nine out of ten of them will say, beer yoga is a bad thing. <laughs> you know, so, so the answers are really consistent. But yet you say to people, you know, we can cope without these structures. And they say, oh, well, then it will be anything goes and anybody does their own thing. But that's not what happens. That is literally not what happens. And that's where we can talk about, I'm not sure I've talked about murmurations with you, which is my other metaphor, which is a slightly more advanced metaphor. Bring it on. Okay, so um, so a murmuration is what happens when birds, flocks of birds, particularly starlings, move through the air. You're seeing these beautiful images of starlings moving together, and shoals of fish do the same thing, and, and other animals do the same thing. And murmurations are what you get when you get a collective that's moving together, but they're moving as a group of individuals, and they're governed by only three principles. So the first principle is each individual is doing their own thing. They do. They have their own desire, their own their own desire of where they want to be. Okay, but they're constrained by two other principles. And the first principle is you can't be too far from the other people in the group, or the other starlings in the flock, or the other shell, you know fish in the shell, because otherwise that eagle or that shark or whatever is going to come and get you. But you can't be too close to the other beings in your little group because otherwise you'll bump into each other and it will be uncomfortable. So there's a minimum and a maximum distance right, that you maintain from the other people within the other beings within your little group. And in that gap, that between the minimum and the maximum is, is where the individual desire for movement comes. And as a result, the shoal or the flock as a whole moves through the sky or the, through the ocean in these amazing patterns. Now, when yoga teachers hang out with the yoga teachers, one of the questions they're constantly asking each other is, is this yoga, is it not yoga? Because if I set up a yoga class uh, and I suddenly decide that everyone needs to be doing four hours solid of breath of fire and then take ayahuasca or something, like, I am not going to survive long <laughs> within the yoga community as a whole. I am going to be ostracized. I am going to be right out on the edge. Probably, you know, the sharks in the form of, legal intervention are going to arrive, right? Somebody's going to come and take me out. But if I set up in the studio or the, or the village hall next door to you, doing exactly the same thing that you're doing as a yoga teacher, with exactly the same practice, there's no point, right? We're, we're too close. So as a teacher, I'm constantly trying to be just individual enough, follow my own kind of heart, my own path, my own teaching, but not too far out from other teachers. So I'm constantly checking in and what's going on 
in the world around me. So that's constantly having conversations about whether yoga is yoga or yoga is yoga and where am I in relation to all of these things. So the culture of yoga, the more it's able to communicate horizontally with each other, the more we're able to communicate with each other outside of these structures, outside of these bubbles, the more that we are able to move like a memoration through into the future of yoga. But one of the things that's cool about it is that it only works with proximity. If you're not hanging out with other yoga folk, if you're not having all of these informal conversations, you've got no way of telling where you're going. You're flying blind, literally. So whether you're actually having conversations or whether you're, you know, just reading the articles that are in the yoga journal or whatever it might be, these connections are really, and relationships are really important. And then the problem comes. And the problem comes is that a lot of those conversations are very, very difficult to have because either those conversations are dominated by this very narrow band of commercial kind of stuff, right? Which is completely generally unrepresentative of what the mass of yoga teachers are actually doing. This is really narrow band of very, very, very successful, very relatively superficial engagement with yoga. So that's a lot of the stuff. If you look to the media of yoga, that's what you see, our media representations of yoga. And most of it's not even selling yoga. It's selling pants or it's selling yoga or it's selling insurance. I mean, you know, it's like we're a $16 billion in industry, but none of that money is either being owned by yoga teachers and none of it actually is even coming from yoga teachers because we don't buy any of that stuff anyway, right? So that, if you're not careful, kind of replaces one form of conversation. And the other problem is, is that a lot of the other conversations happen on social media. And social media is one of the worst places to try and have actual proper grassroots sensible conversations because of the way social media is organized to make us all as angry as possible with other people <laughs> as much as possible rather than trying to have conversations. And yet, Facebook is full of yoga teachers going, I'm not sure about this, can someone help me? And you can see them shouting into the void that is Facebook with, you know, 3,000 random strangers will respond to them according with various levels of trolling and helpfulness and anger and preconceptions and all sorts of things. But they're desperately reaching out. They're desperately trying to have conversations, not because they're too stupid to know the answers, but because they're trying to calibrate themselves. They're trying to calibrate themselves all the time. So the best thing that the yoga bureaucracies that we have can do for us is actually not to give us a whole load of standards, things to, to live up to, and another lot of exams to pass. What, what we could really do with is as many opportunities as possible to be in relationship and conversation with each other. And in my experience, and I may be naive in this, but in my experience, the yoga teachers I meet, you bring yoga teachers together in a group and everyone benefits. I'm just there to hold the space, really. I was running the counseling department. We would get together once a week and we would just bring pieces or discuss them, you know, either to gain ideas from other people because we are limited by our own experience and perspective and to gather information. Yeah. So, yeah, we don't have, we're one of the few therapeutic professions that does not have peer mentoring, that does not have managerial supervision, that does not have any of those things in place. And all of those conversations, all of those structures that do occur in therapeutic professions, you're right, are just excuses to be in a room together and just share your day and go, oh my God, the weirdest thing happened. And <laughs> has anybody ever happened to anybody else? And am I completely weird? And, you know, how do I deal with this? Or, you know, the things that you can't share uh, with your students because you're in a very different relationship with them, you know. And, yeah, we definitely need a lot more of those things. And, of course, the problem with the fact that they now happen informally is it means that people have differential access to them. So if you're in a rural area, it's harder for you to have those connections. If you're from a marginalized population, you know, it's more difficult to discuss those issues that are specific to that population. You know, if you're the only uh, queer yoga teacher or the only, you know, yoga teacher of color within your informal group, it's very difficult for you to then have conversations about some of the issues you might face as a result. So generally speaking, uh, as ever, the most vulnerable amongst us are the ones who have the least access to these kinds of support. And that, you know, it just exacerbates the power issues that we have.
So for people who are well connected and particular and outgoing and, you know, have the time, the space, the money, the access to have, uh, I know, for example, you know, lots of yoga teachers around the world that they speak to. And, you know, I have, I have the most amazing access to lots of amazing yoga teachers, thinkers and writers that I can have conversations with and a chat with when I want to. But at the same time, I still feel the, 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 the lack in some ways of a local network that, that can do that for me. So, so yeah, it's about, it's that wonderful phrase, like, who's not in the room, right? Who's not in the room? Who's not in the room with you? Who's not able to have those conversations, whether they're online or in person? Who's struggling as a result? And I did, um, I'm not going to mention any names, but I, because I have talked with a lot of yoga, different yoga bureaucracies around this issue. And I was just describing the kind of, kind of peer mentoring and support that I think is so vital to this work. And the person I was talking to who was quite high up in one of these organizations said, oh, well, if the teacher training is organized properly, that should happen anyway. And I said, well, that's lovely, but we're just going to throw the people, you know, who don't have it under the bus. So talking about these, these student, these student teachers who kind of, you know, bounce off to Bali or India or whatever and come back a teacher in four weeks. And we say, oh, it's terrible. They're undertrained and under-supported and under-resourced. So what? We're just going to ignore them? We're just going to pretend they don't exist or are we going to bring them into our networks and, and help them figure out the gaps in their knowledge that we believe are there because they didn't have, you know, a one year or an 18 month relationship with a cohort of fellow teacher trainees that we keep going back to and keep having, you know, support with. You know, as you're saying this, I'm realizing, boy, it's a lot easier to have a hierarchy. <laughs> you don't have any responsibility. Hierarchies are easy. That's why we set them up. But hierarchies are, are, have such a lack of resilience uh, in response to rapid social change. And, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a situation of rapid social change and we're in a profession that's seeing rapid change as well. So how on earth are you supposed to you know, cope with that stuff? I mean, depending on whether you did your training, like depending on the organization with which you did your teacher training, depending on whether that teacher training was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 or 20 years ago, your understanding of things like the actual history of yoga, the proof of the efficacy of yoga, uh, the science about, about how yoga works, and the ethics uh, of the structures and the systems within yoga can be radically different. I mean, when we think that uh, Mark Singleton's yoga body basically revolutionized most people's understanding of how old the practices that we do now are, not yoga as a whole, but the practices that we think of as traditional. He revolutionized our idea of, of how old they actually are. And that book came out in 2010. Well, that's after my teacher training. <laughs> I didn't get any of that in my teacher training. <laughs> you know, uh, whereas, you know, I have friends now who, um, people that I know who are coming to the end of teacher training and, and, and you know, with the really reputable teacher trainings, I'm really jealous of the uh, curricula that they've got now. I would have loved to have some of that stuff, you know, when I train. Because uh, that knowledge is evolving so far. Well, if you have a set hierarchy, you have no way to go back. The senior teachers, you're relying on those senior teachers to, to, to each and every one of them be up to date with all the knowledge that's out there. And to be frank, I don't think it's possible the way things are going to have a complete understanding of the whole of the biomechanics of the practice, the whole of the philosophy of the practice, the history of the practice, ethics and practice relationships, consent to touch, trauma-informed yoga, accessible yoga, you know, so many of these things. I'm not sure anyone can be an expert in all of them. So therefore, it makes sense to go to different people to get to get advice now. I am so grateful that I came with, when I started practicing Ashtanga Yoga, I had already been practicing for almost 10 years in other styles and ways, right? And I remember in order to be accepted by the group, I put it away so that I could learn this system, this method, and not be distracted. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know so many long-term Ashtanga yoga practitioners who do a yin yoga practice on their off day, you know, like, because <laughs> that makes sense. You put those things together. And I don't think it makes them less of an Ashtanga practitioner because, you know, it's what they're doing on, on the side, so to speak, is specifically designed to support their Ashtanga practice. You know, sometimes the, the pushback people have 
about trying different styles and different ways of working is this whole metaphor about, you know, digging one well rather than lots of shallow holes. And I think that's really interesting because for me, the practice is the well. It's the coming to it every day. That's the point. Or however many times a week that you're doing it, that you come to it. That's what digs the well. What you do when you get there, that can change. But you keep turning up for yourself and you keep turning up for yourself and you keep turning up for yourself. Do you think that what keeps us within the proximity is just the showing up? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you have to keep testing it. So when I was talking, uh, when I was figuring out how authority works in, 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 a, in a sustainable post-lineage environment, it is a combination of internal, external, and relational. So, so, the, one, so the, the external is the expert, right? So that expertise as a post-lineage practitioner might come from a particular lineage or it might come from the latest cool thing you've read about polyvagal theory or it might come from the workshop you just took on adjustments, whatever it might be. Like There's external expertise, but that isn't enough on its own and it's very multiple in form. Right? It's, kind of, it's trying to figure out the, the, the difficulties is figuring out what weight you give to each all of that different external information. And you test it, and you test it in the laboratory of your own practice over and over and over again. So that the kind of there's the external and the internal. You have to figure out whether it makes sense to you, because it doesn't matter whether everyone says that, for example, coherent breathing is really good for you. I do not like it, and it does not work for me, and therefore I'm not going to teach it. Right? So it's just personally, I think it's one of the worst things to teach for anyone with a serious trauma. But that's just me. Right? So. So in the laboratory of my practice and my teaching, no way, no way in hell am I going to teach it. So there's that. But then the thing is, I use, then I also taste, I also test it within the relational authority. So that's the other thing that we do. So that's the murmuration thing. So coherent breathing is a really good example. So I started to see a lot of stuff come up about coherent breathing. And I know for me personally, it doesn't work. And I'm a trauma survivor. And I thought that was interesting. So I started to check with yoga teachers I knew who were trauma survivors. And so on. And they all said, oh, God, yeah, any of that counting breath thing? Nope, nope, we're not doing any of that. Nope, that completely triggers us. And so all of a sudden, I had that corroboration with other people that this wasn't a practice that works. certainly doesn't work for everyone. I mean, I know it works for some people. It works for many people, but there's many people that doesn't work. Can you, can you explain it? The coherent breathing thing? Yeah. The pro- okay. The problem with coherent breathing is that when the, when a human body is at rest and comfortable, it tends to a particular pattern of breathing. And it's, uh, there are studies that show that that particular pattern of breathing has, I think it's a roughly even, um, inhale, slightly longer exhale and a, and a pause. And they figured out what the average kind of ratio of that is. Um, and this, of course, is something that has been done in modern yoga at least for a long time is that you count breaths. So the idea is if you replicate that pattern, that the person doing it will therefore become relaxed because that's how a body breathes when it's relaxed. Well, the counter evidence to that is that if you force any, if you force the breath into any pattern at all, for many people that completely triggers the nervous system into fight or flight and therefore is one of the least relaxing things that you can do. So it's not the pattern that's the problem. It's the fact that you're forcing it. So it seems fairly clear to me that there are going to be people who try this and are going to really enjoy it, and people who try it and it just makes them want to run from the room screaming. But uh, you need to test that more than with you know small cohorts of people in a scientific study to, to to realize that because you're not necessarily going to test that in, in ways that are going to bring that problem come up. But if you test it with a whole load anecdotally with a whole load of yoga teachers, it's gonna come up, right? <laughs> because enough of them are going to turn around and go, oh, oh, oh no, no. I've always heard to hate is counting breath. It's always been like, you know, the the part of the practice I hated the most. So so we've got all of this anecdotal information that we hold as, a, as, a, as communities, as networks, as cultures, right, that, that we hold between us, so that you know you're not the only weirdo <laughs> who finds this, 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 this particular practice a problem. And that doesn't mean to say we need to know in a scientific sense whether this works for 87.3% of the population or whatever it might be. What we need to know is that it works for some people and it doesn't work for others. And when we know that, then we can be more considered in how we teach it with people alternatives. And I do think that 
like a corollary to the, if you're going to have this three-part authority of the internal and the external and the relational, kind of depends on horizontal networks, not just between yoga teachers, but also with our students. And again, by that, I don't mean that the teacher just sits there and goes, hey, do what you like. I mean that we hold a space in which people are allowed to find their own agency, encouraged to find their own choices within the practice, because that's how we evolve our understanding of the repertoires that we're teaching. It's how they actually truly learn the practice, because otherwise they never learn to make choices. The way that we teach yoga too often is to tell people as exactly as possible what to do, how to think, how to move, where to put their third metatarsal, what they're feeling whilst they're in there. You know, we want to make that as exact as possible. And by doing that, we believe that somehow magically people are going to become empowered to have a practice that works for them. I know you just finished your PhD and your dissertation. knowledge is the technical term which haunted my dreams for many years so in order to be a significant contribution to original knowledge it starts out being uh, in language that's very very technical because the first thing you've got to figure out is what you're trying to say and then you've got to figure out a way to say it and you tend to be using a lot of technical language for that and then it goes through your like your 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 kind of main argument goes through many 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 conversations with people and it tends to become more and more accessible the longer it goes on until the point. There's always that beautiful moment. People are always asking you what your PhD is about. And the moment where you can describe it to someone who doesn't, who isn't also an academic in less than 15 minutes is really good. Because people's eyes just glaze over in panic. Because you're very excited and you're going, this is, this is my thesis, it's really amazing. And you start talking about rhizomatic learning and horizontal um, authority structures and they start to look a bit panic. So, <laughs> so... In a similar way, there's the thesis. Now, the thesis, it's because it, uh, this is the funny thing. In the UK, it, a PhD is a thesis and an MA is a dissertation. So the thesis is the big one, right? And in the US, an MA is a thesis and a PhD is a dissertation. But anyway, it's the big one. It's 100,000 words long. It is 330 pages. It is full technical language. I am overjoyed that some yoga teachers have downloaded it. And bless your hearts for reading it. Some of it is more accessible than others. Cliff um, notes are coming. There's cliff notes coming a couple of stages. So you can, I, you know, we can put the link for people who really want the thesis version. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> like I have a, you know, this, this in love itself, this podcast gives you kind of some of the important bits anyway. I am currently nearly, 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 nearly finished writing what's known as the monograph. So that's the academic version of the thesis so that's a little bit more accessible and that's going to come out at some point when my, when my publishers decide it's going to come out with equinox they've got a really groovy title for it we're calling it post-lineage yoga from guru to me too but that will still be fairly you know academic so that one's going to come out but the i'm going to finish writing that relatively soon and then the next book i write is going to be not so much the cliff notes version but also uh, also, the what does this mean for you as a yoga teacher? Like, what what is the point? Why is it you know why is it useful? What are the main threads going on at the moment? I kind of halfway between the thesis and a kind of a state of the union. If that makes sense. Where are we at? And what's going on? So that I promised myself that's the next book I'm going to write. So those are both going to come out in the next couple of years. But in the meantime, the thing to do, which I adore, is actually get me to come and give a workshop or come and get me to guest on a teacher training and I do kind of I have things that I do for both that are either one day or two day or even four days. Really good ways of getting hold of me. My website is really easy. It's wildyoga.co.uk and that's just because my last name is Wildcroft. People tend to think it's like a formal style of yoga. No, it's just because my name is last name is Wildcroft. So it was a really easy URL. So it's wildyoga.co.uk and you can find all sorts of stuff on there. And the thing that Pretty much lots and lots of people tend to do is add me on Facebook, which is what we all do these days, isn't it? It's like add me as a friend on Facebook. Unfortunately, I've had some trolling issues. So I, my stuff on Facebook only goes out to friends only. It doesn't get, so it's, it's a, it's a way to shut down some of that stuff. 
So it means you do actually need to add me as a friend if you want to get significant access to my ramblings, but then you also get any other ram- random ramblings, <laughs> things that I'm doing. So if people want to do that, significant numbers of people seem to want to do that. It's a really good way. But also on my website, there is one thing, like down the bottom, is a link to my newsletter. And I have what, two newsletters, one which has, has teaching details and places I'm going to be at. The other is something called the Research Roundup which is my last job of the day I really need to do today, which is I send out a monthly, like, four or five different resources of random research things. And some of them are yoga-related, some of them are related to religious studies. They're just whatever's in my head at the time. Some of them will be, like, academic stuff. Some of them will be blog posts. Some of them will be podcasts. So it's, it's, it's weirdly popular. I think we've got about 600 people or something following it. So once a month, you get an email from me with, here's some interesting things to make you think. So that's kind of cool. So you have to go to the bottom of my website to find it. And there will be one coming out later today, honest, as soon as I finish writing it. I love meeting with you and talking with you. And I hope you promise me that you'll come back. Oh, that'll be fab. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. Because, yeah, it's nice to have reasons to have conversations with cool people. So. Thanks for listening to today's podcast episode with Theo Wildcroft. Ashtanga Dispatch is all about creating and supporting community. And this podcast would not be possible without the help of good friends like you who share a mission. Please visit ashtangadispatch.com backslash donate to learn ways you can help and contribute. The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is written and produced by me, Peg Mulqueen, along with Megan Powell. Music is by Mark Pilly who, by the way, we are so excited to announce, has just come out with his debut album, Acorns. Check it out at arcsong.net. That's A-R-K song.net. And make sure you have a listen to one of my favorite songs, Let It Go. It's really beautiful. Thanks for listening.